0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. For the past four weeks, I've been in rehearsals for a new musical adaptation of Anne of Green Gables. During that time, I've gotten COVID for the second time and had to miss several days while I was recovering. In fact, I wasn't the only one who got COVID during the rehearsal process, so it's been quite a journey for the creators and cast as a whole in putting this show together. But We've now done all the blocking and scene work and are headed into tech rehearsals this week. With that in mind, I wanted to revisit an episode from a couple of years ago with a playwright who was just getting started in his own journey as a writer, an actor, a director, and producer. Chris Eli Black has remained one of my favorite guests and was someone who actually found me and requested to be a guest on the podcast. I am so grateful for him reaching out and for the very personal, honest, and at times uncomfortable conversation we had. We talk about the writing process of bringing a show from the page to the stage, as well as what it means to him to be a black writer in theater today. Now, he was only 21 when we sat down for this interview, but his insights and life experiences show a maturity and wisdom far beyond his years.
1: just as people who I know have gone in audition rooms that have been told it up, I've had people see things I've written or read things I've written and saying, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be
0: blacker, whatever that means. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and welcome to another episode of Why I'll Never Make It featuring conversations with fellow artists on the realities of a career in the entertainment industry. That website, WhyI'llNeverMakeIt.com. In recent weeks, one of those realities has been the issue of race and how that shows up in casting, producing, writing, and the overall creation of theater pieces. Chris has gone through his own share of ups and downs. In fact, he and I were texting a couple of days ago, and he opened up to me about how one year ago today, his life had hit its lowest point. He found himself confused about everything, his purpose, his goals, his life. He was lost, to say the least. And he was very thankful for this chance to have a conversation, share his journey. And he ended that text by saying, what change a year can make? But just as time can change us and hopefully improve us, sometimes we keep coming back to the same issues over and over again. Our country is facing that right now with regards to race and the many aspects that it affects our daily lives. Theater in particular is trying to confront this when it comes to the different voices that are represented not only on stage, but behind the scenes. And that is just one of the subjects that we talk on today. But we start off appropriately at the beginning and what it was that drew Chris into performing and the art of storytelling. When you started to write as well as act, were you writing mostly for, for yourself or for your friends, or were you writing with kind of a bigger thought in mind? I've always written with bigger thoughts in mind. I've never written
1: really for myself unless it's like a poem to perform or something. Uh, mostly because I just, performing is so hit or miss. You don't really know, even if you think you're doing a good job, it might not be a good job to someone else. And so I just prefer writing for other people. Like I was in a production of Hair recently, uh, this past February, and it was amazing. And I, of course, I didn't write any of the music to that show, uh, but it was just so fun to be immersed in someone else's mind. Uh, So I just, and plus, I have such a respect for actors. I think actors, and it's so many actors who are so good, but don't get the jobs and don't get the recognition that they really should. It's actors that are probably better than the actors we have on stage and on screen now. And so if I can get more of those actors, and especially actors of, of different colors and genders and sexualities, In these roles that aren't jokes, but are really dramatic and dignified, and you know, main lead roles, then, then I've succeeded.
0: Yeah, with with issues of race being so prominent right now, do you see yourself as, as a voice to to address these kind of issues?
1: Absolutely, because I think we all have our thing that we should and and can use during times like these, and my voice and my pen uh, are the most important things I can use at the moment. Uh, When I was 12, the movie that really changed my life was Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. I saw it when I was 12, and it was the first time that I saw a movie that was about me, that was about the place I grew up in, which was this melting pot of different cultures, communities, uh, and the conflict that can still arise out of that. And that was the moment I said, oh, I can do this. I don't just have to read about it, I can do it.
0: Do the Right Thing came out in 1989 and was produced, written, and directed by Spike Lee. He even received an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. The story explores a Brooklyn neighborhood simmering racial tension, and the film culminates in violent unrest and a death. A story that is all too familiar even now, 30 years later. In 2014, Spike Lee gave an interview with the Huffington Post about the film's impact and its long-standing legacy. Well,
1: the film is being taught in classes all around the world. It just gets bigger in stature every year, and we really wanted to uh, have people talk about race. I mean, I think we predicted what happened with the L.A. riots. We predicted gentrification, but. Uh, For me, racism in this country is always perking right underneath the surface. And it takes, you know, O.J. or whatever you want, to some incident where it becomes, you know, flashpoint, and then it dies back down until the next thing happens. So it's it's one of those films. Uh, And so really, ever since then, I've been like, I can tell my story and and someone's gonna listen. And it's someone out there who needs to hear it, and who doesn't believe that their story matters. And if I can give voice to the voiceless and tell those stories that don't usually get told, great. Uh, and so I do think it's, it's, a, it's all of our responsibility to speak on it in whatever way we can, whether it's you have a podcast, you can do it with your literal voice. I have writing. I can write characters and situations that put a spotlight on these problems. Uh, but it's also, I think, important to note that these are not new problems. Right. Um, and these are, not, these are not things that need to be forgotten in a few weeks. We can't just put our foot down for a month and then forget about it because it's just going to keep happening. And it has continued happening. Uh, people of color, men, women, have been killed in the past week multiple of them, whether by police officers or by just civilians. So I think that it's important not only to use your voice, but be consistent with your voice and, and don't let any, and and don't let anyone shut you up Mm -hmm. Uh, because that's all we have at the moment. We have us, we have our community, we have our skill sets and we need to use it the best way that we can. Because people are dying. This is literally a life or death situation. You watch the news and it's easy to turn it off because you know that it's the news. You know they're going to talk about probably something sad or depressing or disturbing um, that has happened in your community or in your country. Uh, And so you can change the channel. With the arts, people usually go to the arts to escape. And people usually go to the arts to sit down for two plus hours and just relax you can use it at that time to say a message. I think of a show like Rent that is a, an enjoyable show. Uh, it has great music, great characters, but it also has a message. And uh, at, and even in its most fun, upbeat songs, like Lobby Bohem, you have act up fight AIDS. And, and so it gets ingrained in your mind in a different way because it's constantly playing. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's not like you can tone it out and say, oh, that's fake news or something like that. Uh, So I think the arts shines light on important issues and can do it in a way that people are forced to pay attention to, especially if it's from someone who is influential in your life. If you listen to Beyonce your whole life and then you find out, oh, Beyonce is talking about this thing that's important to her and she's saying she's mad about it, maybe I should look at it. So I feel like a lot of people in the arts are leaders to people and their platform can be used to make that change, or at least get that awareness out.
0: And, and I've heard this from others, that it's so important to see whether it's it's your own race, your sexuality, your gender. When you see yourself on stage or on screen, it really is impactful to think, oh, I can be like that. I can do that. That is something that is within my future and possibility.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's no coincidence, in my opinion, that the same kind of time that I went on the stage in high school in my theater class was the exact same time that Hamilton came out. And mm. and Lynn was the big craze. And it was like, everyone was talking about these people of color, these Black and Hispanic people on Broadway, um, living the dreams that I thought at one time were only dreams. And it was like, okay, so you can definitely do this. And not only can you do it, but you can get in the history books for doing it.
0: And you're still a young man, just kind of starting out in your journey of, of, of acting and writing. And you're still in college right now, right? Have you been able to to narrow your classes to structure it toward creative writing? Well, the thing about liberal studies is that you focus on
1: everything. Uh, you focus on a, uh, different concentrations: so history, English, psychology, family studies, and and as well as creative writing. And what I think is great about that. I feel like if I had majored in creative writing or something, I would be putting myself in a box and I would only be focusing on writing creatively, but Hmm. being forced to take uh, classes about the history of mass media and different history and government classes and family studies classes, it lets me in. I, I enjoy telling human stories. So it really lets me in on how different stories that I can tell. Uh, every history book has new things in it that I didn't know from the last class. Every family studies uh, textbook tells a story of a child who doesn't get their story told about them and who gets lost in the system. And so I feel like the only way I can tell human stories is to have an understanding of people and why they think and why they do the things they do and where that comes comes from. Uh, And as well as my ancestors and as well as the people who came before me and the generations that will come after. So I'm really privileged to be able to focus on so many different concentrations and take the knowledge from those classes and, and insert them into my projects.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important, whether you're, you're on stage, whether you're behind the scenes, uh, us as creative people, we have to be more than just our own insular selves. We have to see the world, we have to see others, as you talk about, hear and know those other stories to see what, what's kind of come before us and where we are in the moment and where we want to go. I assume that those types of things have influenced the subjects and people, characters that you write about.
1: Oh definitely. I could never write Black Panther too. I could never write a superhero <laughs> movie. I just couldn't because I I the the things I enjoy watching and the things I enjoy writing are the things that I can connect to and the things that give me a glimpse into people's lives. Uh and whether that be a contemporary view or, you know, something like Little Women or something uh about a time long long ago, I just like to see people who are people and people who fall and people who bruise themselves and have flaws and are not these perfect kind of built up people, but people who have challenges to overcome and who sometimes don't overcome their challenge. You know, in life, we don't have a beginning, middle, end, like that we know. Of. We have the beginning, we're born, we have the end, we die. We don't know when that's going to be that. We don't have it in two and a half hours, uh, hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, we have and so we have so many more decisions to make um, than just waking up and going to school and eating breakfast and then oh a meteor is falling that's not our lives and so it's so many things that i'd rather watch just people and their day-to-day lives
0: yeah yeah some of my most favorite movies especially independent movies are ones where it's like two or three people they're 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 talking they're one of my favorites uh, before sunrise yes. it's two people walking around a european city and they're just kind of meandering from one subject to the next but in that they're learning about each other they're they're kind of coming together and an attraction forms and it's just a very simple but elegant story about conversation and three of those <laughs> yeah 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 they just kept going they just kept going so 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 simplicity is sometimes much better than you know these huge films that we get You've been able to get into different festivals and, and have your work start to get out there and have that sense of, okay, it's been on stage, it's been in front of people. What is that process like, getting it from the written word to the spoken word, getting it produced?
1: Well, you know, the first thing that really got produced was the film, that the short film that I wrote, The Brother Survivor, which came out of years of me and my uh, one of my best friends, Cody Felix. Just having discussions and wanting to make movies. I texted him one day in like 2017, 2018. I was like, hey, we should just, why are we, why do we want to wait to do this until like we finish college and someone gives us an opportunity? Because most likely that's not going to happen. We don't go to NYU, we don't go to USC. They're not going to come looking for us. You know, you hear that story of, of Scorsese or Coppola, these film school students. Uh, and even people didn't go to them. They went out and they made their own films. So I, I told them that and I just kept, and that's really when I began writing more than ever. I just started writing screenplay after screenplay, uh, feature length and sending it to them. And every time I was like, yeah, this is good, but we have no money to make this. Um, so uh, keep it up, but maybe one day. And then eventually, I don't know what took us so long, we were like, let's do a short that would make sense wouldn't it uh, and so I kind of did different drafts and then we ended up coming with, up with this story about three guys just talking in a hospital basically and so I wrote it and I think any piece of art whether it be film or theater is an act of translation and what I put on the page may or may not end up on the screen or on the stage the way I envisioned it and so then he took that and made this project out of it that has my words coming out of people's mouths, but is so different than what I had originally envisioned in my mind when I was writing it. Uh, and same with the uh, theaters and the directors of theater I've worked with. They take something and they dissect it, basically they die, and they find these meanings in it that you didn't even know or they find these the a word in a certain sentence that stands out to them and so yeah it's really an active translation and it's really interesting to see the different people's processes you know my process right now basically is I'm I don't have a manager or anything so I'm going online and I'm like all right who has open submissions who Whose email address can I bother? And so yeah. every day I'm sending multiple emails. It's like, hey, I know you don't know me, but like, pay me.
0: Right. That's the the writer's equivalent of actors pounding the pavement, you know, oh, going yeah. to auditions. You're constantly looking for ways to submit your work.
1: Absolutely. And I'm lucky to live in a generation where there's so many resources that I can just in my bed get on my laptop and find it out. Um, and not having to manually walk around and send out letters or something.
0: And so in those interpretations that you were talking about, as you hand over your written word to directors and producers, obviously there have been some of those interpretations that you didn't think about. It's like, oh, that's a different way to look at it. I like that. And then there have been other times where I would assume that you disagreed with that interpretation. How have you balanced both of those?
1: Um, Well, when it's good, it's good. I can say that. When it's good, (laughs) it's good. Um, And I'm happy about it. Uh, luckily i haven't had too many experiences where it's like oh my god i've had one and i'm not going to name any names but i was i had one and i just had to move on it was over the thing happened people saw it and i was like well that's that and same with things that i've written in and performed myself i remember in high school i in, i was asked we had a new principal who didn't last long uh, for a reason. And he asked me to do a poem at the pep rally. And I don't know if you know much about pep rallies, but people at pep rallies don't want to hear a poem.
0: Um, <laughs> right. It's a pep it's rally, a, not a poetry it's a rally. Pep <laughs> rally.
1: And so I was in between, they put me in between the band performing and the dance team performing, which, oh, wow. And so they gave me a microphone, which didn't work, by the way. So they gave me this Brilliant. microphone that kept cutting in and out. And I was doing this poem that I hadn't memorized. So I was standing at my phone, and it sounded like I was giving a political speech, like I was announcing my presidency. And I and it was the worst thing in my life because I had, I was looking around because were bleachers on both sides, and I got to make eye contact with both sides. So I was like turning around, and I just see the people just looking at me like I am insane and they're just like what is this guy doing um and they're just completely out of it and then I finished up yeah. and you hear like three people just like in the in the distance and so yeah you have your failures and you have your successes uh the best thing to do is just keep going uh because at the end of the day hopefully the successes will outweigh the failures
0: Oh, oh, as as an actor, fellow actor, I am just, uh, uh, I'm just sinking with you. My spirit aches for you being in those kind of situations. And it wasn't just like you're up on stage and no one's really paying attention. No, this is something you wrote and you're alone. This is
1: the whole school, (laughs) the student body, 500 people paying attention. Um, Oh my god! It's kind of like if you did a comedy and nobody laughed. It was just.
0: Right. Right. It's just awkward. It's uncomfortable. And you just want to crawl into a hole. Yeah. Oh, uh. now, in addition to the plays, as you've mentioned, you've also gotten to do uh, short films. That's kind of where where you got started in in your writing career. And so how do you find the difference writing for film and stage? So if I'm writing for the
1: stage, I'm definitely more focused on the dialogue than describing settings or anything. Uh, If I'm writing a screenplay, I'm much more focused on describing little details. And describing, you know, in a movie, characters don't have to talk at all. It can be, you know, I think of someone like Terrence Malick. Those movies are three hours long, and he might not have five lines of dialogue. And they're still beautiful. But I would never pay to go see a play, and no one talks. I would fall asleep so quickly. I would never, like, imagine going to see um, Romeo and Juliet, and it's all silent. It'd just be, what? Uh, So with plays, I'm much more focused on the dialogue. I'm much more focused on people expressing themselves for dialogue. For the simple fact that in the theater, depending on where it is, you have people all the way in the back uh, who can't see the actor's expressions that closely. So you got to let them know how you feel vocally. With a movie, you can do a close-up. You can do a two-shot. You can make crazy edits. And so it's it connects people in
0: a different way. Do you find looking for ways to submit also different for film as opposed to stage? Is, is one easier than the yeah, other? Yeah,
1: theater is definitely easier, which is why I've done more plays. Uh, because theaters, most for the most part, a lot of them, you don't have to pay. Uh, you just kind of, mm. you can send 10, 15 pages. If they're interested, they'll get back to you. Or if it's a short play, you can send about whole thing, and they'll get back to you if they're interested um, whereas film festivals and stuff, those cost upward to $50 at the minimum to get in, to just apply, not even knowing if you'll get into it. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely a difference there. that.
0: And then there's also the cost of you have to actually make the film in order to submit it, whereas for a play festival, you just have a script and you're but done. But
1: what's kind of funny about the film and the films that we made is that the budget for The Brother Survivor was probably... Uh, $25. Um, we we, <laughs> we use things that we had. It's nice to have a budget and it's nice to have fancy locations and stuff, but I think I'm more proud watching that, knowing everything on that screen was figured out independently. Everything was thought out. Everything was making calls, sending emails, trying to figure out, okay, how can we do this? And it still looks decent. Um, and yeah, and what we didn't have, I had a $25 Amazon gift card um, that was precious to me. Um, and I gave it to Cody. I was just like, just take it. I don't want to. Don't. Don't, don't just, talk about it. Right, just, just, just do it. Do it. Just do Whatever we need. Just <laughs> buy with that. And he bought camera equipment and stuff um, that we didn't have. So really, yeah, that's all gas money and $25.
0: I mean, because as I hear that story, yeah, the financial aspect of it may not have cost a lot, but certainly the time, the energy, the phone calls, the going to these different locations, the asking people permission, it sounded like a lot of, uh, a lot went on behind the scenes, which I can see why you'd be proud of the end result. Yeah,
1: and with that, and as well as a lot personally, I was, it was a strange time in my life, a completely strange time in my life. and. I look at that movie now, and I see how, as a writer, I put my life and what's going on in my mind and going on in that time in whatever I'm writing. So I see, when I wrote that movie, I thought, oh, I was just writing about three guys. Uh, but when I look at it now, I'm like, oh, I was writing about three sides of myself. Um, I was writing mm-hmm. about the side that was struggling. I was writing about the side that was trying to disguise myself around other people so they didn't know i was struggling and i you know i have the side that is more the professional side and the creative side uh that i try to let on as as often as possible and so more than anything i'm proud that i was able to tell that story and that again in the translation of it it wasn't lost and that it's you know, it makes sense, and and I can see clear connections.
0: With your own family life and your upbringing, do you find that you infuse a lot of your personal life into your writing? Absolutely,
1: and not always on purpose, but they always end up in there somehow. Um, But, yeah, definitely, because I feel like writing can be a way to be creative, um, but writing can also be a way to be therapeutic. And I think that when I sit down and I write something I can't write anything without having a piece of myself in it because then I can't I can't stick with it. I can't relate to it. And the last thing I want to do is write about people that aren't realistic and that I can't relate to. If I don't like them. I know the audience is not going to like them either. Um, and so even if I'm writing about someone who's in a completely different predicament that I'm in um, or a completely different person than I am with a different lifestyle, I know problems that I can put in their mouths and in their lines and in their fictional lives um that can come from my own life. I'm not, you know, I've written a few plays uh and even a few screenplays that focus on characters of different sexualities. I'm a straight black man. I can relate to feeling like an other and feeling different and feeling like I don't know if my family's going to accept this choice I've made with life, um, whereas one person might be their sexuality. It might be my career. It might be my choice of relationship. It might be something completely different, but we've all faced rejection and we've all faced, um, judgment. And so I think that's the bigger picture is that we can all relate to each other, uh, without having specifically the same problem. We, because the problem isn't the problem. The problem is acceptance, and the problem is equality, and the problem is um, support, and and that's across the board. Whether you're black, white, straight, gay, so when I see people say things like, "Oh, I can't relate to that," yes, you can. You can relate to it. You can't. You can't understand it completely, but you can have empathy, and you can understand it, and mm-hmm. you can look in your own life and say, "Oh, what was that like when?" that person didn't understand me or when I was bullied by that person because I was different than them. And so, yeah, even if it's not my specific life life experience, um, I put it in there and it, I think it helps elevate it to a level that's much more emotionally relevant and can connect to anyone who's in the audience, no matter what life they've lived or what they've been for
0: yeah, I think you speak to something that's very important because a lot of times we can get caught up in the labels of who a person is. You know, whether their skin color, their sexuality, their, their financial status. These kind of things can label us. Yet, deep down, as you said, we're we're all looking for acceptance. We're all looking to to find our purpose in life. We're all looking for these these greater goals that. That kind of exist throughout humanity, not just in one particular culture or subculture. And I think those are also
1: the best things I've ever written. Are the ones where I just kind of strip it down, and I don't think about okay, what is the audience going to like? What is the typical audience going to like? Because think about it, you know, we're we're people in theater and interested in, in the arts like that. The typical Broadway ticket buyer is 50 plus years old uh, white woman or family on vacation traveling. Um, So most likely they wouldn't choose <laughs> anything I'm writing anyway. <laughs> they're going to go see The Lion King. Or they're going to go see Wicked or Phantom. They're not going to go see, you know, the sad show downtown. Um And so being able to step back and say, okay, what would I want to watch and what would my friends and my family and, and my peers want to watch and what would they connect to um, just having that as a starting off point and sitting down and writing based off of that. Those are the times when people message me or email me and say, I felt that. Even if they're that 50-year-old white woman who's <laughs> always lived with a 100K salary, she's like, oh, I felt that. I understood that. The way you put that, connected to me and my childhood in this way. So I feel like even the people who even they believe they have nothing to do with you or nothing in common with you definitely do.
0: As I was going through the various writings of Chris, one really stuck out to me, and it is something that he and I share in common. Neither of us grew up with a father in the home. And he wrote a monologue called Like Father, Like Son that specifically dealt with that paternal absence. Needless to say, this is a very personal piece for Chris and caused him to go out of his normal comfort zone when it came to writing.
1: Well, the thing about that monologue is I've never written about my father i've written characters that don't have a father plenty of times but i've never written in a situation to where it's me addressing my father or just a monologue or a dialogue with a a man discussing kind of his grievances with his father and i found it was one of the easiest things i've ever written it came out really quickly and fluidly it was kind of like one of those things that was like, okay, this is just, I'm just going to let my mind write this. I'm not going to think about it. Whatever gets on the page is what I'm going to go with. Um, and that's what that monologue resulted in. And the guy who did it, at Malachi River, did an amazing job performing it. And it was also personal to him um, and his life and his story, uh, which I think, again, with translations, translated really well with his emotions in the monologue. Um, I'm going to say I'm going to try to be clever and say it wasn't much of a process to it, but it was a way of processing kind of my childhood and life in
0: general. As you were writing it, was it just for that moment, that monologue, or did you see it being able to expand upon it and, and grow into a larger piece? Well, I'm sure it could
1: expand in a larger piece, but, and I'll always say this, I'm not interested in telling the story about the parent who wasn't there. I'm much more interested in telling the story of the parent who was there. Um, because I think that's the much more interesting story. Uh, The parent who left probably has another family and has a better life. uh, Not a better life, but a different life. Whereas the one who stuck around and had to make something out of nothing. And, you know, my mom worked three jobs at one point. Um, And I remember we ended up finding an old checkbook that she had. And I expected like, oh, okay. So, what what was my mom writing checks about when we were young? Um, and every single check in the checkbook was school supplies and was groceries and was all these things. Like, she's never treated herself to anything really. Um, mm-hmm. It's always been about, okay, how do I get food on the table? How do I keep the lights on? Um, and how do I do it without, quote unquote, struggling? You know. I watch movies and I see single moms um, and I'm like, that wasn't my experience. I didn't have a single mom who's mad all the time or who's resentful of us or something. Uh, she loved us and continues to love us to death. And she's literally sacrificed all she's had for us. And again, it's worked multiple jobs, uh, which is an important part of the story, but even more important than that, she never missed a school event somehow. Um, that Pegasus play, she took, we performed it at 9 a.m., not long after school started. And she went into work at 8 a.m. And she took an early lunch at 9 a.m. to come see the shows. She didn't eat on her lunch break. She went right back to work. Uh, but she made that time to come see, uh, me at age eight as a unicorn. Um, and... Then, you know, even in high school, I remember she had injured her foot or her leg or something and she could barely walk. But she drove to the school event uh, so that I could get there so that she could watch me. And so that's, in my opinion, that's the story I want to see. I want to see the story yeah. about that parent, whether it be the single mom or the single dad who said, you know what, I'm not going to complain about this. I'm not going to moan and groan about this. I'm going to make the best out of this that I can. And she's done a thousand jobs that she's hated so that I can do the one job that I love. And I'm forever grateful for that.
0: Yeah, I'm curious as you tell that story, because I, I had a single mother as well who, who who did a lot. And I never really knew everything that she did. I had everything I wanted. It, it, I, was, I grew up, you know, very, very happy with where we lived, you know, not knowing that she was, you know, Trying to just make make the rent and make sure that the rent stayed low so that we could stay where we were so we weren't having to move. And, you know, she was able to go from apartment into the house we had because she, she talked to the landlord and different things like that that she did to make our lives better. And... So for a lot of it, even though I didn't have a father, I never really, you know, I, I wanted a father. I wanted a brother as well because I was an only child. I, I wanted this family, but I I never really felt like I missed out on something. And it wasn't until I got older that that lack of father started to show itself. And I'm wondering if, as you've gotten older, if that lack of a father has shown up in any way for you.
1: Yeah. Well, everything you just said ring true. And I'm going to address every single point. One, I think it's really important for two men to have this discussion, um, and two men of different colors to have this discussion, because we've all Mm. heard the stereotype of black dads, but it's across the board, um, all races. Uh, and secondly, what you said about not knowing about the struggles and not knowing about kind of the things she had to do is completely true. Like, like a year ago, I was like, I, I told my mom, I had no idea, um, about the whole paycheck to paycheck thing. I thought we were rich. Like we had food <laughs> every night. We had a, a table, we had our own beds, we had a TV. I was like, I thought we were like, I used to literally Google my apartment complex and show my friends. Cause I thought, you know, I'm living the good life. Um, so so, yeah, and I think that's really a testament to to moms and the women and the parents who who are really the best actors, um, because <laughs> they do one hell of a job uh not showing us that side of themselves and never crying about it and never complaining about it and just making us feel safe. Uh, but on to your your question. I never felt like I was missing out. Of course, it has an effect on a child, um, especially in my case, because I had a father who vocally uh, rejected me and vocally uh, Mm. refused me. You know, he would call and he would want to talk to my sister uh, who was older than me, but he didn't, you know, he had no interest in talking to me. Um, At one point, he told my mother I wasn't his. Um, So, of course, it has an effect on you. And of course, you see, especially when you're young, elementary school and stuff, and you see kids who are enamored with their parents and their fathers and coming to pick them up from school and stuff. And of course, that has an effect on you. But I've I really lucked out by having uh, grandparents who kind of filled that slot <laughs> so well and who gave me everything um, that yeah. I could imagine every single year. We always had. Gifts stacked underneath the tree. Um, Every summer, we would go to uh, to our grandparents' house, and they would take us to Orlando and on vacations. And little did I know uh, that while we were on vacation and enjoying ourselves, that was my mom's time to add another job onto her, you know, onto her toll uh, because we weren't home, so she could work all day and all night. And make that extra money so that when we got back into school she could be home more um and and still be comfortable so that was something i didn't know until later on because i'd be like oh you should come on the case team with us and she might come for like a day and then she'd drive or fly back the next day and go back to work um so yeah i was really lucky to have the grandparents that i had who supported us and who gave us everything we ever wanted or needed uh But at the end of the day, whether effect or not, I think I'm much better off uh, not having the father that I had in my life. Um, I'd hate to imagine the kind of person I'd be or the kind of condition I'd be in if I did. Um, Just based on what I know him as now and what I've known him as my entire life. I feel like I'm a much better person because I have much better influences around me. Um, And my life would have been completely different. I don't know where I'd be right now because I would have probably stayed in Louisville. Um, I would have been raised in a much different environment. I would have been raised in a much less diverse environment. Um, I wouldn't have known the people I know. And so, you know, it's one of those what ifs that you could think about all day or you could be grateful that you have the life you have. So, so I, I'm trying to find a way to stay. It that doesn't sound like I'm, deflecting but it does it it's had an effect on me in the sense that i know that when i have kids i'm going to be there and that i yeah. i'm going to make sure they never have to think about what if uh, as long as i possibly can based on growing up in that way and i think yeah, I think if I didn't have the family that I had, and the mom and the grandparents that I had, it it would be a completely different story. But because I did, uh, I don't feel like it had as big of as uh, as big of an effect as it could have.
0: Yeah, my my grandparents on my mother's side were th- were the same. My I was my grandmother's little angel, and I and I knew it. I felt loved. I felt you know. It, and I would go there every other weekend so that my mother could work on the weekends because she 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 fort- was fortunate to just have one job my my whole time growing up. So at least she had that. But just send me to school to to do all the things, and and we would go on vacations to Florida. You know, she wanted me to have the best childhood life that, that I could have. And I know that she sacrificed a lot of her own wants and needs so that I could have that. You know, so th- those weekend times with my grandparents were always great. They they really took a, a large role of that parenting as well as my mom. And speaking to that deflection, as you called it, but it really is, it really is a, it, it is a balance of knowing that Yes. You know, having that, that quote unquote nuclear family, mother, father, the children, the, the home life, the, you know, that, that settled kind of uh, wonderful ideal family is, is certainly something to, to look toward and be like, well, what could have been? But at the same time, the, the, the struggles, the highs, the lows, everything that came from our life is who we are. And so, as you say, we we would be different people had those men been in our lives. And for, for good or bad. And it could have gone either way. And so, I think that was something I was around... I was around the age of 30 or so. I, w- I was in Orlando. I had just gone through a divorce. And I was watching, I don't know if you saw the movie Road to Perdition yeah. with Tom Hanks. And so that was very much about that father-son relationship too. And it was, I-, I can't remember the scene exactly, but I remember my reaction. I'm sitting there just watching the movie. I'm alone in my apartment. And just something that Tom Hanks did, I was like, I never saw, I never had a father to do that. And it just it hit me in that moment when I was 30, that's like, this is what I missed. Yeah. And, and it was, it's even hitting (laughs) me now. It's kind (laughs) of crazy. But it was, it was just a moment and I'd never really, as a child, never really addressed it. But in that moment, it finally hit me that, oh, this is what really having a father means. This is what you miss out on. Yeah. And, and so from there I think that was when I was able to finally start to process being an only child, being a single child, uh, have, you know, having a single parent. And I think that in in some ways in some ways I I was able to be grateful for what I had because I realized okay, I didn't have that, but here's what I did have and I was able to find a, even a bit more gratitude for what my mother did.
1: Yeah, and just to speak to that um, one thank you for sharing that story but with a similar experience kind of on the flip end of that uh, I remember watching Boyhood the Richard Linklater movie um, and mm. at the end of that movie when he goes off to college uh, the mom character she's sitting at the table and she's crying and she's saying I was someone's daughter then I was someone's wife then I was someone's mother what am I supposed to do now um, that her kids were all grown up and leaving um, because they were her safety net. They were something she knew would always be there when she came home. Um, and, and that's the scene kind of like the one with Tom Hanks that you saw that hit me thinking, oh, I'm not just a person to my family. I'm someone that, th- that they rely on and that they know um, is always going to be there. It, it, it's always going to be there. And, and that time ends and that time fades. And I think that you know, again, my grandfather is really kind of taking that slot. And I, I love nothing more than when he says, because he's a very quiet man. Um, he doesn't say much. Uh, he's probably, I've never heard him say more than a hundred things my whole life. Um, <laughs> but when he says, I'm proud of you, that hits me in a, like, that hits me in a different way. Because when he says, I'm proud of you, that means, oh, I've done something to make him proud. It's not like just a throw around like, oh, okay, I'm proud of you. I love you. It's like, oh no, I did this man proud.
0: Chris's writings have not only been in the dramatic setting of theater or films. He's also written essays that deal specifically with issues of race. One in particular surrounds the controversy of some theaters choosing to produce Hairspray with all-white casts. One specific example happened in 2012 in Plano, Texas. The Plano Children's Theater did a all-white production of Hairspray, because according to the president of the theater's board of directors, Daryl Roddenbaugh, no black actors auditioned, and they weren't about to bow to political correctness and deny the actors a chance to do such a fun show. He also added that he wouldn't personally object to all-white versions of The Wiz or To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, if you're as shocked by this as I am, we are certainly not alone. The OnStage blog back in 2017 addressed hairspray specifically when it came to all-white casting. Chris Peterson, the founder and editor-in-chief of the OnStage blog, brought up the point that this type of casting was actually alright with the creators of the show. And here is a letter that they crafted specifically for those productions that used actors whose race was different from the characters they were portraying. Dear audience members, when we, the creators of Hairspray, first started licensing the show to high schools and community theaters, we were asked by some about using makeup in order for non-African Americans to portray the Black actors in the show. Although we comprehend that not every community around the globe has the perfectly balanced makeup pardon the pun, of ethnicity to cast hairspray as written, we had to, of course, forbid any use of coloring of anyone's face, even if done respectfully and subtly, for it is still, at the end of the day, a form of blackface, which is a chapter in the story of race in America that our show is obviously against. Yet we also realize, to deny an actor the chance to play a role due to the color of his or her skin, would be its own form of racism, albeit a politically correct one. And so, if the production of Hairspray you're about to see tonight features folks whose skin color doesn't match the characters, not unlike how Edna has been traditionally played by a man, we ask that you use the timeless theatrical concept of suspension of disbelief and allow yourself to witness the story and not the racial background or gender of the actors. Our show is, after all, about not judging books by their covers. If the direction and the actors are good and they had better be, you will still get the message loud and clear and hopefully have a great time receiving it.
1: Yeah, uh, so I ended up seeing a post on Facebook uh, from an actress who I'm I'm friends with, and it was that onstage blog. And so I went to the onstage blog and I read it. because I was like, this can't be true. Like, it's no way that a show, especially like Hairspray, which directly addresses segregation and racism, could have an all-white test. And the more I read it and the other, and I researched other productions, um, and what they would do, they would have the white actors who were playing black characters, like, put on a different color t-shirt. Like, they'd all wear the same t-shirt, and that was signifying that they were the African-American characters, which is insane. Um, but it's what they did. They've done the same thing with the
0: Wiz and and Orkin Bess. The, the the Wiz just makes no sense to me.
1: It doesn't. You can do the Wiz in Oz.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there is literally a white version and a black yeah. version of this. So like,
1: the Wiz is an adaptation of an
0: adaptation. Yeah. You can do right. you
1: can do the other one. Um, we'll let yeah. you have a few songs, but you can still do the other one. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, it was just so perplexing to me that one. Uh, I I love the songwriters of that show and i love that show but that seems like such an important element that shouldn't be taken out because one it's not many shows that are written directly for african-american actors and actors of color um and that's one of those shows where in your mind in theory you wouldn't be able to do it without hiring black actors and actresses um and you know this is this can sound however it is but the fact is it's it's much more, many more shows that an all-white cast can do without question than it yes. is with with black characters. Um, you can do anything basically, besides hairspray and the Wiz, and no one's going to complain about it. Um, yeah. There are shows because the
0: same is true for hairspray. You, I, I think you couldn't do an all-black cast either. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. It, it needs it needs that diversity. Yeah,
1: it needs that color line one because that's integral to the story. Um, you yeah. have the Negro Days on the on the Forty Collins show, and that's one of the main plots. Is they're trying to integrate the show. Um, you can't have a show about integration that isn't integrated. <laughs> it, makes right. it, it makes it makes it kind of like um, in the producers when they when they uh, when they do the Springtime for Hitler, and they're just trying to get people out the theater. Um, and it's like, how can you go to a show and you have these white people all in the same t shirt saying? We don't want Negro Day. Like It would be so insane to me watching that. It would be such a surreal experience. And so, yeah, reading on it was, was crazy. And I just, I just didn't understand it. I understand that Hairspray and The Wiz are both these popular shows. Um, but there's a time and a place, and yeah, I don't think that's the deal.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and what's interesting is that once I read your article your your blog post then i started kind of researching more because as you mentioned porgy and Bess and all these other productions have happened with all white cast and then i happened to come upon the fact that those creatives just in the last couple of weeks have reversed that decision and they're saying okay no you cannot do all white cast it needs to be a segregated cast in order to tell this story and and so it made me wonder I mean, the timing of it's certainly very interesting because race is very prominent right now. But was this a journey over the last several years of them realizing, okay, we need to open this up? Or was this just a of the moment, okay, we're going to fall in line with everyone else? It, it, it kind of made me wonder the timing of it.
1: In my opinion, I would definitely say it's a falling in line thing. Again, I love the show. Um, I love Mark Shannon. And, and those songwriters and Scott Whitman. But that's definitely what it feels like um, because I feel like if that was their opinion, they would have done it from the jump. Um, and I think that that's kind of the thing that happens with times like these is people jump on the defense and they don't want to be attacked and they don't want to be called racist and they don't want to be put on the label or, or quote unquote canceled. Um, and so they make these changes, uh, or they come to these realizations, um, which is great that they did eventually. Um, I think that the shows will be better for it. Um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I don't want people to do things because they feel like they need to do it. I want people to do things like that and make those necessary changes because they realize that it's a problem. Um, and they do it without internet heat and they do it without blog posts and they do it without a time or a moment when, you know, Black culture and, and Black artists are speaking out and saying, we want our voices heard and we want this space. That shouldn't be a fight in 2020. That should be something that's apparent. That should be something um, that's obvious to the public that people of different colors should have equal opportunities and shouldn't be judged when they walk into a room. Um, so I do feel like it was a defense mechanism, um, especially due to the, due to the timing. If, if they had done it a day after I did that blog or after I did that uh, essay article, I would have been like, okay, so maybe they got, well, no, actually I would have been like, I would have taken credit for it. I'd be like, ha, <laughs> they read it and they got it. But I, this is obviously a reaction to what's going on right now.
0: Yeah, because I think it is so important that we put ourselves, our society, up to a mirror and and showcase what's right, what's wrong, what's not working, what needs to be fixed, and and fix those things. I, of course, that's important. But hopefully, in that journey, and you know, as you said, we we've been here many times over the last several years. That it stops being a moment and and. Begins to be a movement. It begins to be something that is, it's just how we operate, that we don't see it as, well, we can just flow and do whatever. It's like, no, these issues of race matter whether it's in the moment or whether we've gone through 10 years and there's been no incident. It still needs to be, this is just how we operate. And I think and I hope that that's where theater can get to, that it becomes more of their default. Of realizing, yes, these voices need to be heard and we don't need someone telling us to do it.
1: Yeah, and that's completely true. And it it's a period, a ten year period where no incidents happen. I'd love to live in I'd love to live in that generation. Um right. but also I feel like it's 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 so deep rooted. Um, the inequality and the discrimination is so deep that I think it it's gonna be much more difficult than that. I remember when a casting call or something had come out um for Hamilton. I don't know if it was the tour or the Broadway uh version, but it had specifically asked for African American actors and, and actors of color and actresses of color. And a whole gang of Becky's and Karen's were like, this is racist. This is reverse racism. What if my son wants to play Hamilton? It's like you have Every other show, we have Hamilton and the Lion King. That's all all we have. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's going to take a lot more than just saying we need change. It's going to take people holding themselves accountable. It's easy to judge other people without looking at ourselves and our own decisions and our own biases. Um, It's going to take having a casting room full of people who make decisions that aren't all one kind of people. You can make a show with an all-black cast, but if you have an all-white creative team, that's going to bleed into it, Um, and that's going to affect the way they look at different people, and and things like that. You know, I've heard countless stories um, from people I know who have walked into audition rooms and have been told, or even BFA program auditions, and are told that you just don't fit. Or on the flip end of that, can you make it a little bit blacker? so one, it's going to take that ring with people holding themselves accountable. Two, it's going to take putting other people's stories on the stage, taking that risk. I know it's a, a risky investment, but if you can risk the investment with Beetlejuice, you can risk the investment with us. Um, and I think that there is a time, hopefully in the near future, where all of Forty Second Second Street is shows written and featuring people of color. Um, and then people have no choice but to go see those shows. Um, yeah. And so I hope that time does come, but it's going to take a lot of thought, and it's going to take a lot of accountability, and it's going to take a lot of effort. And it's going to take a lot of teamwork. And again, it's going to take a lot of consistency.
0: In your own personal writing, then, what does... What does success look like, and what right now holds you back from that success? In my opinion, success
1: is well, one success is having someone read it in the first place. Um, then, second step is success is someone saying, Oh, this is actually good. Third step of success is someone saying, I want to put this on. Uh, the next step is them obeying and being respectful to the restrictions that i put on the characters based on gender and race um i don't need to be on broadway to feel successful i'd love to have a show on broadway one day um i'd love to have a show you know my biggest dream is to have a show at the public theater off broadway um i love the public i think out of any theater the public has done an amazing job with diversity from the jump i mean that's where hair began as for a chorus line began runaways. I can't imagine another theater in 1968, 1970, who would say, oh, a musical about a bunch of black and Puerto Rican runaways written by a Puerto Rican woman that directed and choreographed by the same Puerto Rican woman. Yeah, let's put this on stage. Um I don't know if I'd put that show on stage in the seventies if I own a theater. Um so yeah, definitely the public is is a goal and they continue to tell those stories. Um, And at the same time, as long as it gets out to someone and someone sees it and it hits one person uh, and connects to one person and makes them think and possibly change their opinion um, or even makes them think about their own lives, then I find that that's a success. Um, But in terms of what's holding me back, um, there are the obvious things. Um, I'm a 21-year-old Black man in an industry where 21-year-old black men are not the standard. And I write stories that you don't expect probably a 21-year-old black man to write. Just as people who I know have gone in audition rooms that have been told blackened it up, I've had people, you know, see things I've written or read things I've written and saying, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be blacker, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> um, and so it's really... Um, a tug of war on both ends. I don't look like Tennessee Williams. I'll never look like Tennessee Williams. Um, I'll never look like Stephen Sondheim. I'll never look like Andrew Lloyd Webber. And I'll never write the things that they write about. Um, and what effect that will have on me in the future and in my career is for time to tell. Um, I was happy when I saw that *A Strange Loop* won the Pulitzer this year and has. Won the Drama Desk, kind of unexpectedly swept um, the awards that would usually go to big Broadway shows. But again, we see these things happen. We have these moments, um, like in 2016 when um, with Hamilton, it was, oh my God, people of color, we got it, we made it. You know, we're the big show. And Cynthia Revo won the Tony that same year, and it was like people of color just swept the Tonys and. But they had Shuffle Along on Broadway that same year, and it was like, okay, we made it. We're good. We have equality. Um and then the next year was like, Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, <laughs> 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 and nobody asked oh, hire me, please. Um, but, yeah, so we just need, you know, my biggest fear, I think, is people either thinking that my story isn't accurate to their ideas of the black experience or the colored experience. Um, Even though it's mine, I grew up in an immigrant community. My apartment complexes were never black, white. It was black, Hispanic, uh, South Asian, uh, white. It was everybody, different kinds of music playing all the time, different smells of different foods all the time. (laughs) Not all of them great. Um, Different times of waking up. Uh, different times of going to sleep, and it was all people who I never saw. I, I've never seen someone get shot. I've never seen a drive-by in my neighborhoods. I've never seen you know a bunch of gang members hanging outside my door. Um, I've seen people people of color um, with not a lot of resources go out every single day and every single night to to live and to take care of their family. Mm-hmm. And if that's not the story your theater wants to tell fine. Uh, Luckily, we live in a time, and this kind of calms my fears or any stress I might have, we live in a time where I can rent out a theater myself. I can do a Zoom play. I can put it up myself, and I can invite other theaters and say, you know, you didn't want this, maybe, but look at it on its feet and see, and close your eyes and listen and see if you hear black or if you hear white or if you hear a story. Um, And I think that's what's most important. So really the successes and the failures and the fears and the hopes go hand in hand. You apply for the same grants as everybody else. You apply for the same fellowships and the same opportunities. Um, And I always like to say, I can send 100 emails a day I know one of them is going to say, let's talk about this.
0: Well, I certainly have no doubt that Chris's future is bright and he has a long road ahead of him as a writer, as a playwright, screenwriter, whatever he puts his mind to. But I was struck by one of his answers when I asked what's holding him back. And the first thing he said was, I'm a 21-year-old Black man. And my hope is that as his career continues to flourish and grow, that that will no longer be something that holds him back. The color of someone's skin should never hold anyone back from the career they want to have, from the art that they want to create, from the life that they want to live. And I am sure that the writings and the messages, the stories that Chris will be telling will be a strong voice for those who have been unheard and unseen so far. To watch, read, and learn more about Chris's writings, you can look for links in the show notes or go to the website, whyillnevermakeit.com, for that information. Also, while you're there, you can donate to the podcast and further my efforts in bringing more stories like Chris's to the forefront. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, reminding you that the reasons for not making it may be arbitrary and frustrating, but the reasons to keep going are even more numerous and rewarding. Join me again next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it.